jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Hey! Jingle bells, Batman smelt, Robin laid an egg. The Batmobile lost the wheel to the Joker. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and happy holidays from Mark Hamill as the Joker on the Batman animated series and across the airwaves. The podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, still mourning the loss of Hawkman and Cubs legend Ron Sano. And with me is my co-host... Hey, everybody, it's Nico. On this week's episode... We're reviewing the mid-season finales of Castle, Bones, Fringe, Smallville, and Supernatural. And at the end of the episode, we're going to reveal which finale was our favorite. And this week, we don't have any TV news because most of the shows are going on hiatus and things have kind of gone dark with the news. Although, I do have a slight announcement that two weeks ago I mentioned on the Facebook that Eliza Dushku was doing a new TV show on TNT she has pulled out of that and is no longer going to co-star on that show. And that was Birdsong or something like that. And so uh, that is the only TV news I have for the week. Bummer on that. But maybe we'll see her in Ghostbusters 3. Like <laughs> maybe. Like keeps saying. Maybe. So with that, we're going to move on to our discussion about a pretty solid mid-season finale for Castle, entitled Last Call. Yes, on this week's episode, Castle and Beckett investigate the murder of a dock worker turned bar owner whose body is found floating in the East River. In the process of the investigation, they uncover a secret buried since the days of Prohibition. This week's Castle can be best described as just plain fun, through Castle's wild, imaginative theories once again coming true. But unlike in the previous episode with Aliens, things were much more based in reality thanks to some references from New York City's history. This episode, like the summary said, started out with a body being found in the East River, which makes Castle already think that the murder was a mob head. But as we head back to the precinct, Esposito very smugly tells Castle he's incorrect. No mob ties. Are you sure? Good work. However, after the body is examined, it turns out that Castle was right on the case having mob ties, which he rubs big time in Esposito's face. Back in 1977, Billy Pitt spent 10 years in federal for assault and racketeering. And what? Racketeering. In fact, this mob connection leads back to a New York City bar called The Old Haunt, where Castle got most of his inspiration as a young writer. And if you're a history buff like myself, then Castle... This is the kind of place that would make you go absolutely giddy because it is in the basement of a building similar to Cheers if you watch that classic TV show. And it has maintained the look it had when it was used as a speakeasy back in the 1920s. Plus on top of that, inside the bar is a picture of a devilishly handsome writer 
that you may know as Richard Castle. Oh my goodness, Castle. You were so cute back then. Back then? Although, in my opinion, my favorite part of the old haunt was it having a secret basement, which gave us the kid in the candy store's expressions that makes us love Nathan Fillon. As Castle and Beckett investigate the secret basement, they discover that this week's murder victim was killed by an extremely expensive bottle of scotch that once belonged to Jimmy Walker, the mayor of New York back in the 1920s, who was chased out of town by the FBI for his involvement in a scandal which partially dealt with him not following the laws of prohibition. By the way, just in case you're wondering, the writers of Castle did their homework on the history of New York City because Jimmy Walker was a real person who was mayor of the Big Apple back in the 1920s and early 30s until he was run out of town by FDR, who was governor of New York at the time. Finding the murder weapon not only pushes Beckett one step closer to solving this week's mystery, but it puts Castle on a mission to taste Jimmy's Walker's historic scotch. However, this mission somewhat comes up in smoke as Castle discovers an empty bottle in the trash, belonging to a guy similar to the main character in the social network, to drink his scotch with root beer, much to Castle's extreme annoyance. Man, nobody hit anybody. Yes, we'll keep mixing root beer with fine scotch. That may change. Okay, Castle. Let's go. Just Thank you. Greatness, little uncultured pilot doesn't deserve... Did you hear what he said? Root beer? If I was 15 years younger, I'd give that kid such a pinch. Eventually, after attempting to make the scotch at home, Castle becomes so desperate to taste it that he is willing to lick the broken shards of a bottle found at the crime scene. But luckily, Beckett keeps Castle from doing something gross, but she warns him that there could be blood mixed in with the scotch on the broken bottle shards. Also, at the same time, while seeking a taste of the historical scotch, Castle tries to come up with a name for his own imaginary bar. The Castle just have a wee drawbridge to let you in. Continuing on with the murder investigation, Castle and Beckett discover a hidden room with access to old sewer tunnels inside the old haunt's secret basement. And as they start heading into the sewer tunnels, Castle attempts to be Indiana Jones as he creates a makeshift torch. But Beckett ends up ruining our fun by pulling out a battery-powered lantern. Torch would be more fun. After searching the tunnels, Castle and Beckett discover that the murder victim found multiple bottles of Jimmy Walker's scotch and was trying to sell them through an auction house. This, in turn, brings Beckett and Castle to the library, where building plans of the sewer tunnels revealed that the auctioneer selling the bottles was this week's murderer. Back at the precinct, Castle thinks he's finally going to get a taste of Jimmy Walker's scotch, but the captain tells him that all the bottles need to be put into evidence. However, just as Castle thinks all is lost, the captain gives him a bottle, under the promise that he will make a donation to the NYPD Widows and Orphans Charity. Castle immediately agrees and starts to cry because he finally gets to taste the scotch that he has desperately been seeking, which was absolutely hilarious. Then, after getting a few playful jabs from everybody at the precinct for crying, Castle reveals that he has bought the old haunt and invites everyone for a drink. And on this note, I'm really hoping that the old haunt exists as a location like they have on Bones, where the team at the precinct hangs out afterwards. That if you watch Bones, everyone knows the place they go out for a drink is the Founding Fathers. Or many times they have lunch at the diner. 
and I hope the old haunt, because it's such a cool place, exists as this type of location on Castle. And with that, the cast of Castle walks out of the precinct, singing the Piano Man, leading us to wait for their return on January 3rd, 2011. And with that, Nico, I want you to sing us a song, you're the Piano Man. Sing us a song. About your thoughts on Castle. This episode of Castle was classic. I loved it and really liked the way they incorporated some of New York history into the storyline of this week's mystery. Dan, you and I being from Chicago, speakeasies and the era of prohibition are naturally interesting to us. And since much of the 20s gangsters that supplied the liquor to these establishments were run by the Chicago gangs and none other than Al Capone, this episode made it even more interesting to those of us. It was fun to learn a little bit about the New York prohibition history. And I think you and I both have said that Castle's historical fascination is one of the things that we really like about him. Yeah. It was also interesting to find out that this was the location that he wrote his first novel. Yeah. And that totally fits my entire image of Castle and also Nathan Fillon. So that was kind of cool to see that. And I do agree with you that I hope it becomes a staple of the show. The mystery this week was excellent as well, especially when they brought the prohibition tunnels into the mix and the trap doors and secret compartments. I've always liked that kind of stuff. And I always thought like Bruce Wayne in the Batcave and things like that would be really cool to have in your own house. But anyway, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Walker or the fact that there's actually a brand of scotch that is currently sold under that label. Yeah, I uh, don't know my scotch, I'll tell you that. Okay. My <laughs> uncle Jeff is a big fan of the stuff, and I don't know whether there's any truth to the castle storyline about the private stash never being found, but supposedly the Johnny Walker label is considered fairly good stuff. And I think the blue label retails for somewhere around 150 bucks a bottle. So it's fairly good mid-range scotch. But I don't drink the stuff either, so I don't know yeah. really that much about it. But anyway, this week's castle was outstanding. And I really can't wait for the third for new episodes. Yeah, me too. I'm definitely with you on that. I just loved how we kind of got some more backstory on Castle's past. Because we don't really know all that much about his past. I mean, we know he's a writer, but we don't really know what inspired him to become a writer. So it was nice to see one of the things that is kind of behind the magic of Castle. Exactly. And I think it brought the idea that he's very much an arts and letters kind of guy. He likes history, he likes literature, he he enjoys all those kinds of subjects. And so he's. I think that we're going to find that his love of reading and storytelling is what ultimately made him become an author. And I think he finds inspiration in history for a lot of his stories that he writes. I just loved it that it meant so much to him. Like when the kid was drinking the scotch with root beer, and just how bent out of shape he got. I saw you and I in him when he did that. That you oh, know yeah. we'd be so upset about some nitpicky thing like that, that it was just great. I really could relate to him with that stuff yeah and i love how you made the connection that they were uh saying that it was essentially mark zuckerberg yes that was good i actually like that movie but that's probably because i like jesse eisenberg more than i like mark zuckerberg yeah (laughs) but anyway it's cool that they're very on top of things they had the whole historical gangster thing but they're really on top of modern pop culture as well 
by slipping that character in there. Exactly. So that was a nice touch. Great episode. There wasn't really anything nitpicky in it to complain about, was there? It was just a good time and a great way to kind of end the night or in the first half of the season for Castle. It was just really well done. Yeah, it was an excellent episode. I didn't have anything that really stood out to me that was a reason for me to not enjoy the episode. It was A-plus all the way. Again, this episode, it was different than the other season finales this week. It was a little bit lighter because the other ones really played up the drama, and we'll get into that as we continue the show. But it was nice to have a season finale that kind of had just a nice move into the next half of the season, which is probably going to get more intense, and I have a feeling that we'll be seeing the triple killer again. So when we get there, we'll do that, but this was a nice fun one and a nice comeback after being off for two weeks to remind everyone what this show's about and why we love it. So very well done. So with that, I think we're going to move on to Bones now with an outstanding episode, probably one of the best in the series, entitled... The Doctor and the Photo. This week's episode, Booth and Brennan investigate the mysterious death of a surgeon whose life and death challenge Brennan's legendary objectivity. As the team sifts through the evidence, Brennan identifies more and more with the brilliant doctor and her life, which makes her question some of her own choices. This episode of Bones, as I called it last week was a character study on Bones, similar to the episode back in Season 4, where Booth was trapped in an old battleship by the Gravedigger and visited by a fellow soldier in the military who was killed in combat. On that note, David Boreanaz's performance made that episode, and Emily Deschanel did the same thing here with this mid-season finale by beautifully giving us an inside look at Bones' ability to somewhat communicate with the dead. I also have to give her kudos for being in every scene of this episode because it meant that she worked overtime to create an episode that was near perfect, except for two scenes. Moving forward, the last episode of Bones for 2010 started with Bones having Booth, Tana, Angela, and Hodgins over to her apartment. And throughout the course of dinner, Booth has Bones show off her ability to figure out how the chicken they were eating was killed from a bone on her plate. Watch this. Okay, Bones, do you think? Here we go. Okay. Pelvic diameter indicates female with strong muscle attachments suggesting free range. Hairline fracture to the tibia tarsus indicating that she struggled as her feet were restrained prior to her head being severed. Thank you for waiting until after we ate to show us that trick, Booth. From here, Booth, Bones, and Hodgins are called away to a crime scene, where they find a skeleton buried underneath a tree. And as the victim is taken back to the lab for identification, Bones discovers that she is wearing a dolphin ring, just like hers. Later on, at the diner, Tana uses the search engine known as Big to discover that this week's murder victim is a world-renowned surgeon that no one seems to be missing. With that being said, realizing that Hannah identified the murder victim made me borrow a line from Nico's vocabulary, which is, Are you kidding me? The main characters on this show are supposed to be the brightest scientific minds in the world. 
and the murder victim is identified through the use of a personal laptop. Then, Nico, I want you to say this with me. I mean, come on! I understand that Hannah is needed as a love interest to create drama on the show, but she should be the farthest, and I mean the farthest thing away from helping Bones, Booth, and the Squid Squad solve the weekly mystery. Especially more. Especially in this fashion. I mean, a search engine that anyone could use it. And the fact that this happened, it was ridiculous and really, really dropping the ball on the writer's part. The good news is, after stomaching this scene and just how horrendous it was, things become a million times better as more parallels are made between Bones and this week's murder victim, such as the victim and a helicopter pilot sharing a sexual tension similar to Bones and Booth. By the way, I don't know if you caught it, but when the helicopter pilot revealed that the murder victim was never able to admit her true feelings for him, Booth looks directly at Bones, giving us a signal that even though Hannah is currently in the picture, Bones and Booth will probably still get together at the end of this series. As the episode continues, Bones seeing herself as the victim causes her to start acting in an erratic behavior by not sleeping at night, talking to recordings of the murder victim, and using her emotions to solve this week's mystery, which causes Hodgins to whisper a humorous comment to Angela. I... I feel like it will. Okay. It's a little weird that you said that, sweetie, but it's good. Good? I said something like that. She freaked my head off. Can't we take a few minutes to delve here? However, throughout all of this, Bones is able to stay somewhat grounded thanks to the help of a Jeffersonian night guard named Micah. I attended this lecture with this philosopher guy. He says that for something to be objective, it must be separate from the mind. And nothing is separate from the mind. There go ipso facto Columbo Oreo. Played by Enrico Colantoni, who I loved on the TV shows Veronica Mars and Flashpoint. And unlike Booth's old military buddy in the Gravedigger episode, it was unclear if Micah was divine intervention, Bones' mind trying to counteract extreme emotional stress, or just a real person, because it was kind of suspicious that Booth didn't know who Micah was, even though he has spent several nights at the Jeffersonian. By the way, Enrico Colantoni wasn't the only Veronica Mars cast member in this episode of Bones, as Francis Capra, known for playing Weevil, appeared on this episode as a murder suspect slash drug dealer. At the same time, Micah wasn't the only one who attempted to help Bones, as Sweets, the character that I said to watch on this show, had a great scene where he declared to Bones that he has more than proven that he's good at his job as a psychiatrist. But he does this not to win their classic debate between science and psychology, but to prove to Bones that he is her friend and will always be there to help when she needs it. And Bones somewhat takes Sweets' advice as she visits the helicopter pilot to tell him that the murder victim not sharing her feelings with him was probably the biggest regret of her life. And I think this was a huge step forward for Bones. She's normally so focused on science and herself, sometimes she doesn't always think of people's feelings. And what she did for this helicopter pilot, and to go to him and tell this to him, that was huge. And it was very, very nice of her to do this. And it just shows that Bones 
is a person that really has a big heart, despite her brain being so enormous that it sometimes kind of makes her have tunnel vision. Honestly, this episode of Bones was filled with great moment after great moment, up until about the 36-minute mark, where Bones and Booth start an argument with Hannah in the room, complaining about how she doesn't like it when they fight. And again, we've talked about it before on this show, how we thought that Hannah was whiny when she was in the hospital and asked for Bones' glasses. And I thought the same thing here. I mean, really, honestly, it felt like she was going, I don't like it when you fight. That really annoyed me. It really got out of my nerves. And focusing in on this scene, I would have been okay with it if anyone else broke the fight. And I mean anyone. I would have accepted Zach showing up. Or better yet, the gravedigger breaking up the fight over Hannah being there. Because it just dampened the scene, in my opinion. However, the writers made up for it by the resolution of this week's mystery, putting Bones in a position where she almost gets hit by a car. Just like what happened to the murder victim. But at the last second, she is saved by Booth. Again, I'm still scratching my head at what exactly inspired Booth to show up right at the nick of time. But it set up one of the most vital seeds of the entire series as Bones finally admits her feelings for Booth. But being the stand-up guy he is, Booth turns her down, saying he's in love with Hannah. Although, as depressing as this was for us hardcore Bones fans, and as much as we want the sniper to come, Brennan manages to once again get a grasp on reality, based on the fact that her sadness over Booth turning her down proved that she was different than the murder victim, who was known to be a cold-hearted ice queen. And with this strong desire for the sniper to finally come and take Hannah out, I'm going to hand things over to you, Nico, with your thoughts on Bones, which will return on Thursday, January 20th, at a new time of 9-8 Central on Fox. Yeah, this was an excellent episode of Bones for all the reasons that you mentioned, Dan, and the fact that there was only two or three Hannah scenes. But I'll get to that in a minute. Good call. (laughs) Emily Deschanel was amazing in this episode, and she showed just how well she knows her character of Bones by playing these scenes that were such a departure from the norm for her character that is the scientist, but she was able to merge the scientist and her struggling against these newfound feelings, and ultimately after three days, her mind readjusted and we saw her return to the normal Bones character. That being said, I think that a change has come upon her that will not revert to the old Bones, but rather will be a new, emotionally more mature Bones that will be different than the one we've known in the past. And we will see her to continue to develop emotionally so that when the time comes, she will be the romantic partner that Celie Booth wants and needs. Yeah, real quick on that, though, just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, I don't think it's going to be like in this episode where it almost felt like she was borderline on going insane. Oh, absolutely not. It's not going to be that extreme, but... It'll be a little bit more emotion than what we seen. I think the best example of it in this episode was when she went and talked to the helicopter pilot. That's what we mean as a more caring Bones, I think. Exactly. The reason she was struggling so much in this episode was it was because these feelings were completely newfound and, and yeah. she had no idea how to adjust to it. Now that she's adjusted and can function that way, we'll see it come out every once in a while. And you're absolutely right. The scene with the helicopter pilot is a perfect example of what we'll see in the future. Now, as for Hannah, 
Holy oh, cow. Holy cow, was it terrible. The scene you mentioned about her interrupting the argument in Booth's office was possibly the worst scene with Hannah. Possibly even worse than the one that you mentioned also, the one in the hospital at the end of the episode in which she was shot. Before this season, I have not once cringed at an episode of Bones. I have done so in nearly every Hannah episode this season, and it really, really is beginning to piss me off. We have jested in the past about hoping the sniper is going to kill her. Well, my future with this show may ride on that happening soon. I can't abide watching many more episodes of Bones that have Hannah in them. Well, the good news is, Nico, I don't know if you saw the name of the next episode, but the title is The Bullet in the Brain. Oh, please let it be what we want. (laughs) I think the way they left everything, it's got to be the next episode of the week after. Yeah. Now, as for the scene with Bones and Booth in the end of the episode, I totally agree with you that Booth did the right thing by turning Bones down. He is with Hannah now. For better or worse, it would be wrong for him to jump ship, no matter how much I hate her, just because Bones was finally admitting her feelings. Yeah, he's a stand-up guy, and any less would have been way out of character for him. And at least the writers stayed true to that aspect of his character, even though they've been making some changes lately. That's the only scene involving Hannah where Booth, I felt, was in character, though, so far exactly. this season. And again, that was because she wasn't even in the scene. Exactly. So, I don't know with that. Did you think that scene was good? In the car? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. I felt that was right up there with episode 100, where... Booth tried to make the move on Bones. Yeah, it was definitely as emotionally charged as that episode. Okay. It was a good episode, minus those two or three scenes. Now, two questions for you. What is? What do you think Micah was? Was he real or not? That's tough, because I got both impressions, that he was a individual who was playing a role, whether he was actual or whether he was a godsend or a figment of her imagination or an angel or whatever the case may be. But this wouldn't have been the first time she'd seen him because they had a very comfortable relationship before this episode. So, yeah. But the choice of char- or actor was amazing. Yes. Amazing. I am also a fan. And I loved him in both Veronica Mars and Flashpoint as well. So I can't really answer that definitively what I thought he was. I kind of like the idea of him being an angel or something of that nature, but it could have just been, since she was already talking to the CD player, why not (laughs) be a figment of her imagination too? But him being a real person also holds interest because then he could show up again. I would like that. I can't get enough of Enrico Colantoni. I really can't. Exactly. So... I can't really answer that one definitively. Okay. The one with Booth in season four, where he saw his military buddy on the ship with the gravedigger and all that. They very well kind of firmly described, okay, this is kind of a ghost, or if you want to debate it later on, you could say it's because of Booth's brain tumor that he has at the end of the season. But this episode, there wasn't a definitive thing, and that was interesting. The other thing that was interesting that they left open-ended was what possessed Booth to show up in that neighborhood just at the nick of time to save Bones. Well, he kind of explained it, that he had noticed that she was acting unusual, and so he kind of was keeping an eye out for her, and he saw her leave, and so he thought it'd be best to just 
Taylor see if she's okay and ended up he saves her life so it was poorly explained but kind of still explained well because I'm wondering in a future episode if there's something he didn't say to Bones about what got him there that may come up later on I don't know okay like I don't know if maybe he had a fight with Hannah over what happened earlier that day or what but I just thought it was interesting that he was out that late with Hannah living with him and everything. It feels like that there was more to it than meets the eye, I guess is the best way to say it. That's a good observation. I hadn't thought about it that way. But again, with the sniper coming, we'll probably forget about all of this. Especially if he does what we're all hoping for. Yes. And how about that scene with sweets? I really liked how that was done. The one in the diner when he explains that he has proven that he's very good at his job and that it would be illogical for her not to heed his advice. Yeah, that was an excellent scene. I really am beginning to become a huge fan of that actor. John Francis Daly. John Francis Daly. Yes. Indeed. And the more I see him in, the more I am beginning to like him. So he was kind of a gimmicky character in the first couple times he was in the show, but I've really grown to enjoy and i know he's your favorite character this season yeah he's just been really well developed this season really well done and he's really stepped forward i mean i've always liked him before but now he's really coming to his own this season and i think that's great and honestly i think after bones is done i wouldn't be surprised if we see him on another show or carrying his own show yeah it'll be interesting to see because i mentioned last week that he's co-starred in Freaks and Geeks yeah. as one of the main characters, but there were like six main characters in that show. So in a sense, he wasn't starring in the show. So it would be interesting to see if he gets his shot as the leading man. I would watch the show well, just I, for him. And I can't help but root the guy because he is from my home state or our home state of Illinois. Exactly. He grew up in Wheeling, Illinois. So that's kind of exciting as well, too. So anyway, I think we've pretty much covered this excellent episode again if you've not caught up on this season of bone so far watch this episode it's great i mean i just watched the whole series over the summer and this was one of my favorite that i've watched so far i've had about four or five favorites but this one was right on the list even despite the hannah scenes so check this out and i cannot wait to see where this is going i think this episode is only the tip of the iceberg where this great season six is going to go so Keep an eye on this show. It's going to be great to watch. And we may get one of the best seasons of the series, depending on how things work out with Hannah. But it's really shaping up to be a great season if things go the way we're predicting it will. So with that, we're going to move on to another show that I think's moving in a good direction. We'll see what happens with it getting moved to a new night. Fringe. With the episode entitled Marionette. Yeah, while the Fringe team investigates the case of a man who had his heart extracted, Peter deals with revelation of whom he's been dating for the last few months. This episode of Fringe was slightly different than what you would expect from a mid-season finale for a sci-fi action show, through it playing up the drama instead of the action. But it was totally fine with me, because after three weeks in a row of sheer intensity, it's understandable that this show's story arc needed to take a breather. Basically, this episode starts out with Olivia visiting Broyles' office to tell him all about her adventure on the other side. And as I predicted, Broyles asks what Colonel Broyles was like, and Olivia declares her promise that she made to him 
to protect both worlds. Meanwhile, as they head to the crime scene created by this week's villain, a man who steals people's organs, Dr. Bishop, in his own off-the-wall way, tries to give Peter some fatherly advice to tell Olivia that he slept with Bolivia, thinking that she was her. Fred, I understand how difficult it is to be candid with people that you care about, particularly when it concerns matters that are intimate in nature. Ready to go? Uh, yes, I am. And by intimate, I mean sexual. Yeah, I got that. Peter responds to this by saying that he was already planning on telling her, and this makes Dr. Bishop proud that he raised a good man. Later on, as Olivia and Peter wait to meet with a doctor connected to this week's investigation, Peter reveals he slept with Bolivia, giving us a scene that was just as emotionally charged as the final scene between Brennan and Booth and this week's episode of Bones, with Olivia failing to understand how Peter could not see the difference between her and Bolivia. Yet for the first time since I've started watching the show, we finally got some sexual tension between Olivia and the real Peter that did not seem like it was forced. And from here, we get a great scene without any dialogue where Olivia tears about her house with Anna Torf's beautifully crafted expressions or the director's great work conveying just how disgusted she is by the idea that Bolivia had been living her life. While this scene is taking place, Peter arrives at the lab where he tells Dr. Bishop that telling Olivia he slept with Bolivia did not go over very well. In response to this, Dr. Bishop gives Peter some profound advice, and then comedically questions, Do you think possibly they replaced her with a robot? while she was on the other side. This is then followed by another scene that gives us more of a reason to root for Olivia, through her turning to Astrid for advice on her love life. And Astrid shows her support by revealing that Peter was happy when he was with Bolivia, but that's because he thought he was with Olivia. As for this week's investigation on a man stealing organs to resurrect a ballet dancer who committed suicide, it was kind of weak when it comes to fringe standards. Based on the fact that it did not feature a well-established one-off character that we've come to expect from the show. Also, I felt that the scene where the man had the ballet dancer's corpse performed for him went on way too long, and I think took time away from potentially having a scene that took place on the other side. I most likely would think this scene would take place at the end of the episode to give us a great cliffhanger leading into next episode, which I'm assuming is going to take place on the other side. However, I loved how the ballet dancer's brief return from the dead acted as a metaphor to Olivia being disgusted over Bolivia living her life and giving a strong reasoning to why she said that she would never sleep with Peter. But I'm assuming that rule for her feelings are only going to last for right now and they may change by the end of the season or next season. We'll see what happens, but even though Olivia was disgusted by the fact that he slept with Bolivia, I still think Olivia loves Peter. But we'll see what happens. It may not go that way. Again, you never know with Fridge. They always have a tendency to surprise you. But back to the episode. In an attempt to cheer himself up after getting the shaft from Olivia, Peter takes Dr. Bishop out for ice cream, where an observer watches from the distance, questioning why Peter is still alive. And with that, I'm going to end my side of the discussion with the crackpot theory that the observers are the first people, and they want to prevent modern humanity 
from building Walternet's device to prevent them from making the same mistake that they did, which was destroying most of their race. So with that theory, I want to hand things over to you, Nico, with your thoughts on Fringe. Fringe was excellent as well this week. The way the writers crafted a storyline that mirrored Olivia's own feelings and what she was going through was beautifully done. In many regards, this reminded me of the episode of Buffy when Buffy returns from the dead and is yes. sort of going through the motions and doesn't understand how and why things have changed since she died. So, like, I was thinking of that as the story ended. So right. it was kind of a throwback for us to a show that we used to love, or well, still love, but used to watch. Well, I loved how they said it's not the same person that came back. Yeah. Which yeah, is also exactly. a supernatural reference, too, if you think about it. With Sam being resurrected at the beginning of season three. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And now, additionally, this was yet another example of Anna Torv improving with this week's yes. scene that you mentioned, where she's tearing down all her business suits and finds Peter's MIT shirt in the washer and breaks down crying. I was convinced by her performance and could feel the emotions she was experiencing. I think we need to, once again, mention that we've ripped on her so many times in the past that... She did an excellent job this week, and I need to commend her for it. And I think at this point, you probably won't hear us commenting on how poor she is unless it's really bad, because she has turned a corner, it seems. Well, and the scenes she had with Peter were excellent. You're absolutely right. I mean, they felt as strong as the other romances we had on TV. And the cool thing was she had strong scenes with him as two different characters. That scene that she had with him as Bolivia in the end, when he found her out, that was outstanding. And the two scenes she had with Peter as Olivia in, in this episode that they had together were outstanding as well. Yeah. Now, I think as time goes on, Olivia is going to realize that Peter and her friends cannot be faulted with not realizing that it was not her. Because she was doing the exact same thing to Charlie and the rest of the fringe team on the other side and doing right. it successfully. I think in the future episodes, we'll see her cut them some slack once she comes to that same realization as I came to after having thought about this episode for a few minutes. And I'm curious if that's, I'm still going along with that Charlie theory, really into that theory, but I'm wondering if whenever he finds out kind of what's going on, that he realizes that Olivia kind of lied to them, I'm worried he's going to be skeptical of her at first. And that's what's going to make her turn the corner on Peter and their relationship. Okay. If that makes sense. I understand. Yeah. Now, I was disappointed that we did not get a glimpse at the other side this week. Yeah, me too. To see how things are progressing over there. I was kind of looking forward, again, to the both reality episode we got last week. And would have liked to seen how Bolivia was adjusting to being back. And see if maybe she was having any regrets for coming back to her side or having been found out. I'm sure the writers are going to show us the other side soon, and you think it's going to be the next episode. It's a big question right now, in my mind, how the structure of the show is going to go now, now that everything is back where it should be. I'm not sure. I don't know if they're going to do what they did this season, where it's going to be every other episode. Is it a different reality? Or if it's going to go back to the way it used to be, where we just see what's happening on one side, and then when a character has to cross over again, then we see... What happens on the other side? I'm really not sure how it's going to play out. Because throughout this whole show, it still seems to be following the characters on our side. Not yes. so much the other side. 
Yes, exactly. So I'm, I'm confused at how they're going to handle this. I have faith in them now that they made this transfer between worlds work that it's going to be fine either way. But I feel like once we've opened this door, the going back and forth between realities, it's going to be kind of tricky to go back. Yeah, I think what we're going to see is mostly our side. And then occasionally a every third or fourth episode, we get an other side episode just to keep us interested in that side. Yeah. Now, I really like your crackpot theory. Okay. I really like that. The idea that the Watchers are the first people is brilliant. I think that that's amazing. And I'm not sure what they meant about the yes, he's still alive thing. They could have been referring to Peter or Dr. Bishop because they were both there. But I think you're right that they were probably referring to Peter. Now, are they going to take an active role and kill him? Because I thought the idea was that he had to be saved. I'm getting this sense that people weren't supposed to cross over again. Okay. Because remember, they freaked out the first time that Dr. Bishop crossed over. Now they've kind of crossed over twice now, because Olivia's crossed there, and then Olivia crossed back. Right. So that kind of throws off the scale of everything. And I'm curious, was the machine supposed to go off on the other side? Was Olivia never supposed to be there to save him? Oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. No, because wasn't the Watcher came to Dr. Bishop on our side and, and he said, gave that, it. He said that you need to go and get him so that Walternate couldn't use him. I don't know what why they're surprised that Peter's did, still alive. Did Dr. Bishop got shot when they went back to the other side, right? When they went to the other side, Dr. Bishop got shot, right? And they had to take him to the hospital? Yes. So could they have been referring to him that he was supposed to get shot and killed? Yes, but that was so long ago that I'm surprised it would have been this late before yeah. they... I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see on that one because it was kind of a morbid... Not morbid. Um, what a, What's the word I'm looking for? Cryptic. Kind of cryptic. They didn't give much in the way of supporting material so we could make good theories. <laughs> well, I think regardless of what's going to happen is the observers, when they come back in this next episode they're going to be tied to the parallel realities. Because their connection to the realities have not really been made clear yet. But in thinking about it, you know, when they were first talking about the first people, they said that there were reports of them back in the 1800s, and even before that. So it would make sense that it's the observers, because they were around that time, right? They don't age. Yeah, and remember we saw those pictures throughout history where there was an observer at many of the key moments in history. And that's something they borrowed from Doctor Who. Yeah. That's another show they borrowed something from. When other shows get it right, you gotta give them a nod. Yeah. The early concepts of Fridge, as J.J. Abrams described it, was they went in a room and they put together all their favorite things out of sci-fi and put it all together into Fridge. Yeah. So, I guess that's an example of this, but I'm looking forward to seeing where this show goes. Even though it's getting moved to Friday night, I hope people keep watching it because it's a great story. I want to see how things play out. And if you haven't been watching it because of whatever you have going on on Thursday night or you've got a scheduling conflict, check it out anyway because it's great stuff. One of the best shows on TV right now, I think. Yeah, I'm hoping this is not the final season as we discussed last week with the moved Friday night. It could yeah. be the last season, but I'm hoping not. Fox is swearing up and down 
that they did not move it to Friday night with the intention of it getting canceled. But TV by the numbers are saying it's on the bubble to get canceled. But again, they've been saying for four years that Chuck is going to get canceled, and look what happened with that. That's true. So I don't know if they know what they're talking about or not. But hopefully, again, they put enough money into it. It should stick around, at least for one more season, I hope. But anyway, speaking of final seasons, we're going to move on to a show that got a final season because of being incredibly well done and having huge fan support, Smallville. And we're going to discuss Smallville with the outstanding mid-season finales, probably one of the best mid-season finales of the series, entitled Icarus. On this week's episode, in the wake of the VRA's passage into law and the spread of the Omega tattoo, civilians begin rioting against vigilantes, including Green Arrow. Meanwhile, Slade kidnaps Lois, and Clark turns to his allies Hawkman and Stargirl for help. Now, everyone's going to have to bear with me here, because I'm going to get really excited. Because with this week's Smallville, I was amazed at how much superhero comic book greatness could be stuffed into 42 minutes. I mean, this episode had it all. From character building, great villains, superhero guest stars, special effects. They even put Dr. Hamilton in canon in this episode. Without the story feeling rushed in any way, shape, or form. Like the season 8 finale, Doomsday. And since they stuffed so much in this episode, this summary or this discussion of Smallville is going to get kind of long. So bear with us. But I know you guys are such hardcore Smallville fans out there that you're going to stick with us and want to hear every great part of this discussion. Because this episode was so good, and because of that, it's going to make this discussion great. And essentially, this episode started out with a huge moment for the series' overall story. And a great moment for our huge podcast listener, Alisa Lee, as Clark proposes to Lois in a way that was simple, like Clark Kent, but still had a Superman flair. The next day, at the Daily Planet, Lois attempts to show off her wedding ring, but it only makes Kat think she's pregnant, which was quite funny. Oh my god, Lois Lane. Are you expecting? <sighs> Spread that rumor and you can expect my fist in your face. And Tess doesn't seem to care, telling Lois that she needs to visit Watchtower for a security check at 9pm. At Watchtower, Lois meets up with Clark, where they walk into a surprise engagement party thrown by Oliver, Tess, Dr. Hamilton, Hawkman, and Stargirl. Focusing in on this scene, we get to see the camaraderie between superheroes through a nice moment where Clark asks Oliver to be his best man and a series of playful jabs between Hawkman and Oliver that show they mutually care about each other as brothers in arms. You're not going to hug me now, are you? And I don't know about you, Nico, but the comedic quips between Oliver and Hawkman are so well-written that I could literally listen to them all day. Speaking of quips, I have to give Dr. Hamilton credit for a great comment he made in this scene. All I can say is, when it comes to planning the wedding, just nod. <laughs> a lot. Well, you would know, right? I mean, you married Shaira, what, a hundred times now? Well, I've heard relationships that withstand the test of time. That's remarkable. No, or not, I suppose. For you. However, just as it seems all is well, evil rears its ugly head. As Oliver leaving the engagement party stops a purse snatcher, only to be jumped by a group of civilians. 
Thankfully, before things become too vicious, Oliver is backed up by Hawkman and Stargirl, who uses her star rod to teleport them to safety. And I don't know if it was made clear in the episode, but the civilians were marked with the same Omega tattoo that Clark found on Slade. The next day, Clark and Lois see a news report about Oliver being attacked, which prompts Lois to give Clark his jacket. And he races off to Watchtower, where it's decided that the Justice League needs to go underground until the heat from the VRA, who has pretty much taken over Metropolis, dies down. And what I mean by the VRA is that the Vigilante Registration Act has basically taken military form, which means the city is filled with all these soldiers wearing these VRA uniforms. And it almost felt like the Nazis taking over the European countries in Germany, the way that this VRA was structured and patrolling the city. And unfortunately, this decision by Clark to go underground until the heat dies down does not get everyone out of danger because the VRA detains Lois, Tess, and Dr. Hamilton. And on that note, every once in a while, there is a villain on a TV show that I just want to jack in the face. And in this episode, that title went to the VRA woman to interrogate the civilian members of the Justice League. And even though I'm not the biggest Tess fan, I have to admit that I love the scene where she was interrogated by this woman from the VRA, because Tess really seemed to put the tightly wound woman, which I can best describe as a Nazi, in her place. Meanwhile, we got some more great superhero fun, as Clark, Oliver, and Hawkman all walk in on each other, breaking into Slade's office, which was quite humorous. You're not supposed to be here. Well, you're not supposed to be here either, alright? So I guess that makes three of us. And it is revealed that Slade is the one behind the VRA's takeover of Metropolis. Moving forward, thanks to some continuity between this episode and the Season 9 episode Checkmate, Lois uses Tessa's secret slide in her office at the Daily Planet to escape the VRA. And this really made us Starkville's House of L fans giddy because it referenced a great comic routine performed on that podcast. And of course, Michael and I were watching the episode and we're huge fans of Starkville's House of L. And the fact that they brought the slide back, which Starkville went crazy on with the joke, made us very excited and crack up laughing. So I can't wait for their podcast episode to be released where we get the continuation of their joke about the slide. Although, just as Lois is about to escape the building, she is stopped by Cat, who threatens to turn her into the VRA. But Lois shows that she's the perfect woman for Superman by putting her ego as a reporter aside and using Cat's son as a reason to justify her escape. Back in Slade's office, Oliver and Hawkman discover that the VRA has detained Tess, Lois, and Dr. Hamilton, causing Clark to run off to save them. However, Clark only saves Tess and Dr. Hamilton because Lois is in the process of paying a visit to Oliver's office for the purpose of deleting the evidence that the VRA is going to use against them. While in Oliver's office, Lois gets attacked by Slade, and just as he's about to kill her, a shadow sweeps across the screen. And what happened after that literally made my mouth hit the floor as Hawkman burst through Oliver's office window with his CGI wigs flapping beautifully in the air and folding up into a compartment 
on the back of his armor. Now, this shot was unbelievable. The time and detail they put into every feather on Hawkman's CGI wigs, and the fact that they took the time to have them fold up into a compartment on the back of his armor was just awesome. Unbelievable. Smallville broke the bank on this, and it was great. And if this shot wasn't enough, this is followed by Hawkman whipping out his mace to have an all-out smackdown with Slade. But shockingly, just as Hawkman gets the upper hand, the gas main in Oliver's office is ruptured, blinding Hawkman and allowing Slade to stab him through the chest. And as this happens, the gas main explodes, launching Lois out the window. And in one of the most iconic and amazing images in the history of this entire series, Hawkman, with his wings on fire, dives out of the window to save Lois. And this shot was unbelievable, to the point that Michael J. Petty, our guest host on the live show, wants to put it as his screensaver background, because it was that cool. And on the ground, in complete Superman fashion, Clark has a showdown with Slade, which consisted of our hero trying to talk Slade down and then taking action, when Slade gave no other alternative, by sending him to the Phantom Zone. And on that note, I'm wondering if Darkseid is a Phantom, because it's very possible that when the Book of Rao was used to send the Kandorians to New Krypton, it's very possible that they were transported through the Phantom Zone, or using Phantom Zone technology. And that allowed Darkseid to escape. Going back to the episode, Clark walks to the front of the Luther Corp building to see Hawkman lying on the ground with Lois wrapped safely in his wings. And with his dying words, Hawkman becomes the wise man of this episode for the second time this season by telling Clark that he has more than what he needs to take on the darkness. And sadly, Hawkman dies right in front of us. And I'm definitely going to miss seeing Michael Shanks on this show as Hawkman because he was great. And from here, we head to Egypt, where we get an impressive scene dedicated to Hawkman's funeral, which was right up there with the end of episode 100 Reckoning, until it was strangely interrupted by a mysterious crystal popping out of the ground that knocked all the members of the Justice League unconscious. And with that, the final mid-season finale of Smallville ended with me going, what the hell was that? So with the thought of this crystal having something to do with an Egyptian curse, the Luthers are dark side. I hand things over to you, Nico, with your thoughts on Smallville and predictions for the next episode, airing on January 28th. Dan, episodes such as this always make me squirm. I know that the comics have the VRA and that it's a social commentary on the dangers of the loss of civil rights and which... Also seems important now, again today, with the increasing loss of privacy and invasiveness of new TSA screenings at the airport and the many excessive powers granted the government in the Patriot Act to combat terrorism. But the German, the Nazi general this week in Metropolis was tough to watch. Lois even refers to the VA guards doing TSA-like screenings at the Daily Planet as the Gestapo. While these... SS-like characters make for great enemies. This always makes me, as I said before, squirm because I don't like the idea that the American people would become these evil agents of an evil government organization. 
Now, back in school, you probably did this as well, but we learned about the in the 50s and 60s, or 50s or 60s, I'm not sure which one, yeah. uh, and McCarthyism. I never understood how the American <sighs> public allowed something like that to happen. I know that fear played an important part, but how did people not realize that anyone who spoke out against McCarthy was all of a sudden a suspect as being a red? I mean, do we believe that the citizens of Metropolis would also allow these measures to be instituted without some sort of outcry? Would they turn their backs on the heroes so quickly? It made me feel better about the episode when I read, because I did not catch it, but I'm glad to know that the crowd attacking Oliver was marked with the Omega sign, because I did not understand why they turned against Oliver when he was obviously protecting that woman from a mugger. And it wasn't even as if he killed the guy or caused a bunch of damage to the city in the process either. Them being possessed by Darkseid makes all the difference in that because now it makes a little more sense. They kind of explained it in the episode, but in the spoilers and interviews with the writers, they made it more clear that there was the tattoo on them. But they did say something in the episode around the lines where like Oliver Clark asks him, why did these people attack you? Or what was going on? And he goes, I've seen hate from people, but the look in their eyes, it just wasn't human or something like that. Which yeah, is referring to the idea that they had it in there. But again, I think they should have made it more clearer. Or he had Clark do x-ray vision and see that they had them. Like mm-hmm. they did in the Patriot episode. Yeah, now that you say that, I remember them saying, or Oliver making that comment, and it makes a lot more sense to me now that they did allude to it, and I just didn't pick up on it. And I think that you obviously are better versed in the Superman world than I am, and so you catching it was expected. But they did need to do a better job at explaining that because it went right over my head. But now that you mention it, it does make total sense to me. Right. And also, that's why they went to the trouble of them having their own specific VRA uniforms. Mm-hmm. They weren't wearing American military uniforms for that purpose as well. Yeah, and I like that because it really would have upset me to see people in U.S. Army or Navy or Marine Corps or Air Force uniforms and being alluded to as Nazis or worse. You know, So it was good that they didn't dishonor the military in that sense. And they gave them their own uniform, much like the SS wore their own different uniform than the regular German infantry. And also, I think that Slade came back with a vengeance and abused his power as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that the government wanted to have this happen. And I think in the second half of the season, when Martha Kent comes back and some of those things go on, it's going to come out that there's some things in the government due to Darkseid's influence and him being around that has like flung out of control and they can't get a hold of it. And that's why they need Clark and the Justice League to work it out. Because people have to remember, the title of the Justice League, I mean, everyone just calls them the Justice League because it's simpler, but they're known as the Justice League of America. And so, it eventually, by the time it's over, it's going to get to the point where America supports the Justice League because they realize they need their help. And those people that are against the VRA or are realizing, okay, maybe these people can help us, or they're not so bad as they look, that they're going to support him. But again, Clark, at this point, they really want to make it clear that he feels like he's got the whole world against him because in an episode, Clark thinks about giving up because he doesn't know if he has people out there backing him. And then from that episode on, they're going to prove 
that he really does have support. It's just Darkseid is manipulating him to make it not look that way. Yeah. Well, overall, despite my uneasiness at the premise of this episode, I did enjoy it, and I enjoyed it a lot. Also, I think the cliffhanger at the end was effective enough to keep us talking about what the hell happened at the end of the episode till the return next at the end of January. Now, my theory is that it was either a trap set by Slade in the VRA before he was sent to the Phantom Zone as just a they put out a bunch of traps and one of them was at the Egyptian pyramid and it happened to be that they were there for the funeral. Or it was a defense mechanism set up by Hawkman that somehow went terribly wrong. Okay. I'm not sure. Neither of those really sound good to me, but that's what I could come up with. Yeah, because Michael and I watched the episode together. And we thought, as as soon as the screen flashed, and just before we saw them all knocked out, we thought it was Hawkman got resurrected. Because that's a part of his powers, is after he gets killed, he could be resurrected. So we were like, oh, Hawkman's going to come back to life. Then we saw them all pass out on the ground. We're like, what the heck is this? Yeah. So we were surprised that it went that way. It, did it feel random at all to you? Yes. Okay. When I watched it, I had the same reaction. I was like, what? <laughs> so it was very out of the blue random. I was okay because I was like, I got what I wanted. We got the fight scene. We got the cool CGI. We got everything that we were disappointed we didn't get a Patriot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you agree that they, they yeah, gave they, us they, what we wanted. We got action this time, whereas last time we didn't really get the action that we were expecting. <laughs> we got the proposal. That's big. We got a lot of forward story movement and some good old-fashioned action. So it was a good episode. And I thought Michael Shanks was just phenomenal in this episode. Yeah, I mean, Daniel Jackson or uh, Hawkman... <laughs> I've liked most of the characters I've seen Michael Shanks play, and I think it's unfortunate that he had to die for the story because Smallville is losing a great actor in that, but it was necessary. So, And it will be okay without his presence because, I mean, Chloe's coming back. They need to make room for her and what happens with her plot line, of course. And again, I think Lex is going to become a bigger entity as the season goes on based on what we saw in the preview. Yeah. It's going to get good. It's going to get exciting. This is a great mid-season finale, and I'm assuming that if this was this great and they stuffed all this stuff in here, that the series finale is just going to be amazing. I mean, they're really raising the bars for themselves, so I hope they can reach it or go above it. I'm hoping the second half of the season is even better than the first half, and that's going to be difficult because this first half was very, very good. And you and I were praising it every week as it was getting better and better and better, and it started off, you know, the bar set high. So to continue with that pace is going to be very difficult, but I have faith that they're going to do it because it's the last season. I think this season is much better structured than season nine in the fact that they're still building momentum. I felt with season nine... They, they went forward too fast. Okay. And then we had that point in January, February, where the episodes kind of simmered down. But now with this next half of the season, with Chloe coming in and them getting the star power and special guests, I don't think it's going to taper off. Especially when the special guests that are coming in are very important to Clark's story and were a vital part from seasons before. And we need to wrap those things up. Yeah. So it'll be good, and it's going to be interesting. I'm telling you, the character to watch is Oliver right now on this show. 
because there's going to be a lot of drama coming his way in terms of romance and a couple other things. So it's going to be interesting to see where he goes. He's kind of the character that I have the question mark for. We kind of know where Clark's going to end up at the end. But Oliver, they've done some different things than what he was in the comic book. And I'm fine with that because it's needed to make this story better. And they've done a great job with him. But it's going to be interesting to see where he goes. So he's the one to watch. And I'm pumped Chloe's coming back. Also, I want to let you guys know that we are planning on doing another live show for this for Smallville. With the episode entitled Beacon. And the reason why we're choosing Beacon is something very important, possibly for this podcast, may happen that night. But we'll see. So we're going to set it up for that episode. It's a great episode. Chloe will be back. I think we're going to get some other major characters back too. So it's going to be a good night to do that. And that'll be a great thing. So with that, Nico, was there anything else you want to talk about with Smallville? No, I think we hit... Smallville fairly well tonight. Yeah, well, it was a great episode. It deserved to get it. Plus, it's the last mid-season finale I could talk about, which is sad. So, they definitely wanted to give it justice. Indeed. So, with that, we're going to talk about Supernatural now. With their mid-season finale that I think turned this show around. The title, Appointment in Samara. Death agrees to help Dean get Sam's soul back, but requires Dean to serve in his place for 24 hours. Meanwhile, Sam decides that he doesn't want his soul back and turns to Balthazar for assistance. The rogue angel agrees to help and informs Sam that the spell required needs the blood of his father, or a father figure. This solid episode of Supernatural, for the third week in a row, which was a bit slower paced for a mid-season finale, started with Dean visiting a doctor played by Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England, to briefly kill him so he could have Tessa, the Reaper introduced in the season 2 premiere, put him in contact with Death to get Sam's soul back. Luckily, just as Tessa's about to say no, Death appears, saying that he will get Sam's soul back and put up a wall blocking his mind for the time he spent in the cage, on the condition that Dean puts his ring on to be Death for a day. Meanwhile, Sam, fearing the damage that it will cause, visits Fridge's favorite shapeshifter, or I mean the angel Balthazar, to prevent his soul from being returned to his body. Yet, as the summary said, the rogue angel agrees to help by informing Sam that he can perform a spell that needs the blood of a father figure, or in other words, Bobby. Later on, as Dean puts on the ring to be death for a day, the gig starts out quite smoothly, with him taking the life of a gangbanger trying to rob a convenience store, and a guy that has a heart attack while eating pizza. Dean tells the meaning of life is dust of the wind. That's it? A Kansas song? Sorry, he's new. Although, like all the other abilities the Winchester brothers have gained, or the curses that have been put on them over the past six seasons, Dean being in death's shoes goes horribly wrong as he is asked to take the life of a little girl sick in the hospital. At the same time, Sam and Bobby reenact the movie The Shining. Don't say here's Johnny. As Bobby tries to keep Sam from killing him by using common sense along with all the trap doors and booby traps set up inside his house that Nico wants to set up inside of his apartment. And moving back to Dean... We could go on all day 
about the science and spirituality behind the topic of death. Gadid's whole debate in this episode about taking the life of the little girl. However, for the purpose of this story, what was taken away from Dean playing death was to see the damage that was caused by he and Sam trying to always bring each other back to life. Through Dean coming to this understanding, not only do the writers close the door on this theme of the Winchester brothers constantly sacrificing themselves for each other, but they give death a reason to give Sam his soul back. Although before they head to Bobby's panic room, where Sam is locked up, because Bobby finally got the drop on him, Death alerts Dean to the fact that something sinister is going on regarding people's soul, which may tie to the civil war going on in heaven. Again, Death didn't say this about the souls, but I'm assuming, or I'm having a crackpot theory, that this is going to connect to the civil war. Finally, in the last scene of the episode, Death gives Sam his soul back. However, before we know if the procedure worked, the episode cuts out, making us wait until January 28th to see Sam's fate. But thankfully, we can rest easy knowing Supernatural's back on track. So with that, Nico, I want to hear your thoughts on Supernatural, and if you feel that the show's gotten back on track. Dan, I was not a huge fan of this episode. While I agree that it was much better than the episodes of the early part of the season, and the story is finally moving forward... I was not that impressed with this overall episode. Dean was great as always, but I really did not buy into the whole Sam killing Bobby aspect. I just felt like it was poorly done in my mind and it was yeah. unnecessary. I don't think it added to the story. Felt like it was designed to take up time than anything yeah, else. Exactly. The best scenes were of Dean being death. Yeah. Like him telling the mugger that he died because he was a dick. And yeah. the heart, the heart attack guy that it was the extra cheese that did him in a Kansas song, yeah, a Kansas song, <laughs> yeah. I think the writers did a fairly good job at making sure we learned the lesson that Dean needed to learn, and that he and Sam could not continue to mess with the natural order of things and not be any consequences. In reality, what Dean was learning was that there are always consequences for everything he does, and that in the future. Maybe he should start to take some consideration of what those consequences could be. Yeah. Now, it was great to see Freddy Krueger in this episode. And it's the second time he's appeared on one of our favorite shows this season. Exactly. <laughs> I was just about to say, he does play that slightly deranged Doctor character pretty well, doesn't he? Yes. Overall, it was a decent episode that had some good points, for sure. But it had some not-so-great points. And I think the whole Bobby being killed by Sam was not a good move on the part of the writers. Well, if that's go ahead, I was just going to say that was maybe what really turned me against this episode. This episode was very similar to what I thought happened with the Chuck mid season finale, where it was like, we said you could only do so much without Mm -hmm. Chuck having the intersect. Mm -hmm. And the pitfalls of that episode was him not having the intersect. I think the same thing happened here with Sam not having a soul. And now that he's gotten it back, I don't think this is going to be a problem anymore. Okay. But it's good to mention that it is a problem, so the people at Supernatural, if they do listen to this podcast, or have heard it, know not to make this mistake again. Yeah. Because it didn't work. And Michael, who watched this episode with me, 
felt that they made it a little bit slower pace that held back on some things or didn't have all the action in this because they actually used this episode as a band-aid to fix everything that happened because the fans are complaining and they're not happy with what's going on. And Michael said he thought it was very interesting that Sarah Gamble, who was taken over for Kripke's name was on the script for this episode because she normally writes by herself and she helped the guy write the script. So that made Michael feel like that they came in at the 11th hour and said, we need to fix this because no one's happy with where it's going. So we need to get rid of the Crowley thing, do away with all that, and go to this plotline about people's souls and get us the old Sam back. And I want to see the old Sam back because I think this is going to make the show more interesting. There's a whole world of episodes you could do based on Sam maybe itching at the wall. I know Death warned about itching at the wall. But there could be episodes about that. There could be episodes about Sam trying to redeem himself and still feel guilty about what happened with Ruby. Because I assume the thought of him causing the apocalypse and everything that happened at the end of season four that he knows was wrong, it will still be in his brain. The only thing that's going to be blocked out is his time in hell. And I hope that there's still stuff left from when Satan possessed him in the finale episode of season five, too. I hope those thoughts remain in his head. Because that'll be interesting stuff to see. Yeah, it will. I think that's a good point that we are going to see Sam hopefully trying to redeem himself for those actions that, and that he will be aware of those. And that really the only thing the wall is protecting him from is his time being tormented in hell. Right. I think you're absolutely right there. And do you think when he wakes up, like the first thing he's going to say is, Dean, why aren't you with Lisa and your family? Because I told you to go there. And then he's going to try to fix that. Do you think that's going to happen? No, I think he's going to still have memories from the time that he was soulless. Okay. But do you think he's going to try to help him get his family back? That might that's be where... part of his atoning. Okay. For the things he's done. Yeah. Because I'm assuming he's going to be upset that his soulless self took that away from Dean. Yeah. Okay. I think you're absolutely right. Okay. So, even though you had issues with this episode, do you think they're back on track now? Yes, I do. I think it's getting better every week and getting more back closer to the show that we used to love. We still like the show, but <laughs> yeah. but it's not like season one to four and, to a lesser extent, five. Do you think that they did change things in the 11th hour because us fans aren't happy? Maybe. You know, we got through five or six episodes, and then we started seeing the last couple episodes be different. I think that they did come in and do maybe a rewrite or some reshoots to fix things. Because Michael said it was crazy that they went ahead and killed off Mark A. Shepard, that there had to be some big rumbling to do something like that. It could have been in the in the script the whole time that he was going to get only the first five episodes or only the first seven episodes, whatever it ended up being, first nine episodes. But it could have been the way it was along the whole way. If he was scheduled to be in more episodes, they would have rewritten the way it was yeah. going rather than kill him off. So I, I would be surprised if we learned that he was originally signed for 15 episodes and they cut him off at nine that would be unheard of for an actor of his caliber. So I think it's more that he was originally written to be in the number he was in, but they changed how it ended or something of that matter, maybe. And he also might be set to go back to another show. I'm hoping he shows up on Leverage. I'm assuming that's where he's going to be. 
Because if anyone caught the new episode of Leverage, they had a return of a past villain. So I'm assuming if they brought that villain back, that they're going to eventually bring the character Mark A. Shepard plays on that show, Sterling, back as well. Because we had our own theories on how that fitted, too. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I have not caught Leverage yet, so I will uh, look forward to that when I get back to the States on good, Thursday. Yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah, and if you guys haven't checked that out, it was a great episode. It was a Christmas episode, but it was great for the overall story. Uh, there's a lot of solid character building in it, so check that out as well. And check out all these mid-season finales. It was a great week of stuff. Was there anything else you wanted to say about Supernatural? Or No, I think we've, we've nailed Supernatural this week as well. Yeah, well... We're going to wrap things up. Here's hoping that all the shows in the next half of the season that we watch do well. And with that, Nico, do you want to tell us what's coming down in the pipe for across the airwaves, at least for a couple weeks? Sure. Due to the holiday family plans of Dan and I, we've decided to put across the airwaves on a brief hiatus along with the majority of the shows that we watch weekly, but we do suggest that you continue to check our website and YouTube channel for a possible Harry Potter episode. We're planning to do that pretty soon. ATA promos on the YouTube, info on our next Smallville live show, which Dan mentioned earlier. Yep. And there's going to be a few blog posts about Human Target and a few other TV shows written by Michael J. Petty and myself. I got a little break in uh, med school so i'm gonna go home and write a little bit about human target if i get a chance and put some uh, blog posts up yeah and i also think michael's gonna take some time to write a little bit about v depends okay. on what he wanted to do he may also continue with reviews on young justice and also michael has finals this week so that's why the review for this past smallville episode icarus has not been posted yet but uh, keep an eye out for that that will be posted as well too Maybe by the time this podcast episode is put up on the air, it might be done. Not sure, but it will be up sometime next week, so keep an eye out for that. Also, before leaving until after the new year, we wanted to give you a quick look at the 2011 Winter Spring TV schedule because there are some changes in store for some of our favorite shows, and we want to let you know what's going on so you can keep up with our podcast. On January 3rd, Castle returns on the same night and time on Mondays at 10, 9 central, with Hawaii Five-0 still airing in the same time slot. Then on Monday, January 17th, Chuck returns at the usual time of 8, 7 central. Tuesday, January 4th, marks the return of No Ordinary Family at 9, 8 central, which will be followed by V at 10, 9 central. And Michael will be probably writing blog posts, at least on V, well, no ordinary family we may cover again at a later date. Human Target will continue airing during our hiatus on Wednesdays at 9, 8 central until American Idol begins airing. Bones is set to return on Thursday, January 20th at the new time of 9, 8 central due to American Idol. And I would definitely remind you to check out this episode on January 20th because I think something huge is going to happen in Hannah getting shot by the sniper. And Nico and I will rejoice with glee. Indeed. Finally, on Friday night, things are going to get a little complicated as Fringe returns on January 21st. Then, on January 28th, Smallville returns in its regular time at 8, 7 central, and it will be followed by Supernatural, which will be airing at the same time as Fringe. And this is a little scary because, as they say in westerns, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. 
because I think this could potentially, for Supernatural and Fringe, be the nail in the coffin. So we're going to have to watch closely to see which one survives. Again, if you love these shows, please try as hard as possible to watch one or the other live because they're going to really need your support, especially if you want to see their stories continue. So with that, you guys can contact us in a variety of ways about everything we talk about this website. You can even share with us some Christmas spirit by giving us a little Christmas message or a holiday message or whatever you celebrate, you can give us a heads up about that. Or you could just talk to us about TV in general or maybe give us a idea about another cool show we could watch. And you can contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can get access to our email address, which is acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Also, you can hit up our Twitter, which is Across Airwaves. And you can like our Facebook page, where you can get scheduling updates on what's going on with TV. Again, this isn't going to be regularly updated due to the hiatus, but hopefully Nico will be posting some TV news that he discovers within the Facebook page. Also, you can check out our YouTube page run by the member of our ATA Braid Trust, Michael J. Petty. And there he's posted some holiday videos advertising across the airwaves, as well as a number of trailers for some great movies coming out this summer. Also, if you want to, you can leave us a voicemail talking about any of these mid-season finales or your predictions for future episodes of the shows that we cover. Now, what number is that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, once again, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reichstick. And until our next episode, after the new year, we'll catch you on the airwaves. And have a happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. Cooking parade for Christmas vacation Gotta toast up to celebrate Now it's getting closer, I can't wait Gonna make this holiday as perfect as can be Just wait and see this Christmas vacation
now return to our regularly scheduled program.